So uh, if you have a copy of God's Word tonight, let's go to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, just one little chapter in your Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. I'm going to ask a question tonight, and uh, you know, I, I don't suppose when I ask this first question, anybody's going to say, this is me. <laughs> but I, I want you to you know, kind of ask the question to yourself, or kind of answer it to yourself tonight. How many folks in here feel like you have an enemy? I'm not talking about the devil. I'm talking about a physical enemy. Someone that really, for some reason in your life, is just kind of taking it upon themselves to dislike you and make your life a little bit miserable because of that situation. Um, so, you know, there may be some folks that are like that here. Some, you know, some of the worst type of enemies to have are within the family, right? Yes. So, so, in other words, it, you can expect maybe somebody outside and in the world who's not part of your family to dislike you. But sometimes families are divided. And, 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 you know, when you think about it, it doesn't seem normal, does it? It doesn't seem normal that people would harbor animosity and make a, a family member an enemy of themselves. I mean, that does, to me, I, I, our family is fairly extensive. And I can't imagine being so aggravated with a son or a daughter. I don't care what they would do. I can't imagine being so aggravated with them that I would literally hate them and want to destroy them. But yet there are people that are like that. There are people who just are, they're full of bitterness. They're full of anger, hostility. And as a result of that, it's kind of leveled towards someone in their life whom they really do not like. So, so let me ask you this. Have you ever held in your own heart what we would call extreme jealousy or envy against someone. Now, now again, let's be honest. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, you know, I'm really kind of envious of that person, or I'm kind of jealous of that person, maybe their success or their abilities or their talents. Now, now we, we, we don't like to admit it, but honestly, if we sometimes look at our life, we may say, well, yeah, there's somebody, or there maybe still is somebody in your life that you're just a little bit envious of them or have some jealousy towards them. Um, have you ever been to the point you're so envious or jealous that you've maybe acted upon that by doing something maybe a little underhanded towards them? Now, look, I'm, you, you, go back in your mind when you were a teenager, all right? Yeah, because now we're mature adults. We don't do those type of things. But, but oftentimes as teenagers, we do dumb things as teenagers that we live to regret as we get older in life. And so I just think about that. I often think about teenagers, how much pride they have. Jealousy and envy often led, think about this, led to what we call bullying and harassing people, making their lives miserable. So again, I just want to encourage you. So the book of Obadiah, as we look at it tonight, we're just going to spend one lesson on it. Uh, on this particular book tonight. But Obadiah was written about Israel and Judah's enemy. So Israel and Judah. So remember, these are split nations now. These are two different nations. At one time, they were one nation. But under the reign of King uh, Rehoboam, who was, who was Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided. So the kingdom became divided under Rehoboam's rule. So you have uh, Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. And so they became these two nations, but both of them had a common enemy. And that enemy is identified in this book as Edom. Edom, E-D-O-M. And so as we think about that, this enemy is identified, and Edom is a pseudonym for the descendants of Esau. So I, as you read through your Bible and you read about Edom, it's really talking about the, the family members of Esau. So we need to understand that. The name Esau or Edom means red. 
And of course, you may remember when, when uh, Esau was born, the Bible says he came out red and hairy. <laughs> I, I just, in my mind, I have a hard time envisioning that. I mean, uh, you know, it's almost like he's got a full-grown beard, right? <laughs> uh, no, it just, just means that, you know, you've seen some babies that have been born, and they just have a lot of hair. And this was this kid, and evidently he was, he was kind of had a reddish tint to him, but maybe his hair was red. So he comes out red, and, and the Bible states he was hairy, and, and the indication is, is that he had this fiery disposition about his life. So let's talk just a little bit about Jacob and Esau as we introduce this lesson this evening. Most of us would be aware that uh, they are the offspring uh, of, of uh, Isaac. So Isaac and his wife, uh, Rebecca, uh, they struggle to have children, and God obviously then allows them to conceive. And even in the womb, uh, the Bible says she has twins. But even in the womb, they kind of wrestle and tussle, and um, they go at, go at each other. That's what the Bible says. And so you know, Jacob, or I'm sorry, Isaac uh, entreats the Lord about these children, and God explains to them and to Rebecca, hey, two nations are going to be born as a result of, of these children. And so just understand that. And so they're going to be born. And so uh, these twin boys, as we think about twins, I, my wife's father was a twin, an identical twin. My dad was an identical twin. So we've been around twins a lot in our lives. And, and, you know, there's something about identical twins that especially, and I, I've never heard this before. Somebody told me here recently that twins can be either very, very close or can be quite distant from each other. Now, I've never heard identical twins being distant, but I guess that can happen. But I, I guess in the case of sometimes fraternal twins, they can be that kind, of, that kind of animosity. And that seems to be the case. These two boys couldn't have been more different when they were born. And it's interesting that when they're born, that as a result of their birth, dad latches onto one of them and mom latches onto the other one. And, 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 and of course, that doesn't help the situation. There's already animosity, but one's a favored by dad and one's a favored by mom. And, and as we look at this, we find that God had predetermined, uh, even before these children were born, that he was going to allow the younger one to have the birthright. Now, again, in our minds, we, we don't think this way, but you have to understand in that culture that the firstborn uh, got the inheritance, got the, the family farm, so to speak. And, and the younger one would get something, but he wouldn't get as much as the older one. And the idea of carrying on the tradition and the family and all that type of thing fell on the oldest. But God said, when these children are born, the younger will be the predominant one. I'm going to let the birthright be given to the younger rather than the older. And so God worked to bring, was going to use him to bring through, through his line the Messiah. Though uh, Jacob was far from perfect, he seems to value spiritual things. Now, you don't see that really, real intently, but he does seem to have a desire. He wants that birthright. He wants that legacy. He wants to be identified with the promises that came to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. And now he wants that for himself. And Esau was a man of the world. He loved the immediate and put no premium on the eternal or spiritual elements of life. So Jacob schemed with his mother. As we look at this man, Jacob, he schemed with his mother to steal the blessing. So as we understand how that all unfolds, and, and I suppose anybody that reads the book of, uh, of Genesis, you can't help but be fascinated with that story, at least from my perspective. I, every time I read it, I, I just think to myself, man, that must have been something. 
How these two brothers, you know, here's this boy that's born and and how he would manipulate his own father and, and his, his wife, would, you know, his mom and, and his, you know, would, would help him to steal this blessing. And, and in my mind, I just see how that unfolds. And I just see him walking out the tent. And here comes Esau, back from hunting, fixes the meal, walks into his father to, to present the meal. And his father says, who are you? Yeah. Well, I'm Esau. Well, you know, no, you can't be Esau. You were just here. I just blessed you. And just see Esau's life all fall apart at that moment. How, how, how amazing that is as we look at that. And so there's strain within the family. And Esau is so angry, he vows that he's going to kill Jacob when the right moment comes. So Jacob, as you know, is sent away. And he ends up down among some of his family where he is gone to, to get a bride. And while he's away, he not only marries one, but he marries two and brings two other women with him who have children by him. It's just a kind of a, a convoluted mess. And the... But at a point, there's a reunion between the two brothers, a special moment when it seems like maybe that animosity has maybe been at least a little bit dissipated. Because Jacob, as you remember, his name now has been changed to Israel. He's met with God. God says, okay, it's, it's going to be all right. And, and, and as they have this reunion, it's like Esau's not angry anymore. He's not, he's, he's not hostile towards his brother, at least from, from, a, from an outward perspective. But as one continues to read the narrative, after the reunion, things are still strained. And as a result of that, Esau moves away. That's what the Bible says. He moves away and, and occupies a place called Mount Seir. He be, goes to live there. And his descendants, th- think about this, his descendants hold hostility and jealousy over the way life played out with Jacob getting the birthright. So as we come to understand through the lesson that animosity of Edom, Edom, Edom was more than something that they held, it was something they acted upon. So again, I want you to think with me for just a moment. These were brothers. Now the descendants of the brothers, it's, they're carrying on this animosity and building upon it. You know, you, you think to yourself about what's going on. So Israel, God says, okay, I'm going to bless you. They get, they get that promised land. They get that land of Canaan. And Edom and his descendants are over here, and they're looking at this blessing, and they're really agitated. You know, that should have been ours. That should have been mine. Why, why, why do they have it and we don't have it? And so that animosity and anger builds to the point that they're now acting upon it. And as a result of their acting upon it, God now is going to judge them. That's what the book of Obadiah is all about. It's about the dealing with this, this anger that, that Edom had towards Israel and Judah. And they're acting upon it. And God says, okay, you're going to pay for that. So let's kind of walk our way through this lesson tonight. Let's, let's notice some things. Let's jump into it. The lesson is entitled The Fall of the Eagle, and the eagle references Edom. It's a reference, kind of a, if you would, a, an illustration or a simile or a, uh, a pseudonym for, for the nation of Edom. And God is going to bring this eagle down and destroy her. So if you got the outline there, and again, it's just, a, you know, it's just kind of a skeleton outline. If you have a pen handy, you may want to jot a few things down. But let's be introduced to this man, Obadiah. Let's notice the man, man himself. Obadiah means a servant of Jehovah or one who worships God. So here's this man by the name of Obadiah. And by the way, there are 13 people in the Bible that are identified by this name. 13 different individuals that bear the name Obadiah. So that doesn't seem to, there doesn't seem to be any hint in, uh, about Obadiah's personal life or his, his family life. It's hard to identify this Obadiah who wrote this book as 
maybe being identified with another Obadiah that's mentioned in the history of Israel. So again, it's just hard to pinpoint who this man is other than just the fact that we know we're holding a, a book, some 21 verses that he wrote from God as a prophet to the nation of Israel about what was going to happen to Edom. So again, just a little bit about him. It's just, his personal life is a little bit obscure. You know, we don't always, we're not always, there's not always this long legacy or long pedigree to people. So I was, think, I often think about Elijah. You know, Elijah all of a sudden just kind of pops out of nowhere, doesn't he? In, in 1 Kings chapter 17, I mean, we have nothing about his background. We know nothing about where he's born. know nothing about his upbringing. We just know he's Elijah the Tishbite. And all of a sudden he just shows up and marches into the throne of, of Ahab and points his finger at him. So there are lots of times in the Bible when the background of these individuals is just a little obscure. That seems to be the case here with Obadiah. So, notice uh, letter B, his times. Now, there's no specific time given for the writing of this prophecy, because as you read it, there's no kings that are mentioned. It's just basically a book of judgment about what's going to happen to Edom and how God is going to restore Israel. So, there's nothing really to identify in a timeline when this particular book perhaps was written. Now, he does mention in here uh, the plundering of Jerusalem. He does mention in his writings that Jerusalem was plundered and that Edom rejoiced in it. We'll look at that a little bit more in in detail in a few moments. So when you look at Jerusalem and its plundering, there were several times when that happened in Israel's history that are even recorded for us in in the scripture. Uh, The Babylonian invasion happened in 586 B.C. That's when Judah as a nation, Jerusalem as as the capital of Judah, uh, faced Babylon. You may remember they came in and It was during that 586 invasion. So there was really three times that Babylon came down, beginning in 586. But every time they came down, they they did more destruction and more damage and carried more people away. And the first wave of that was in 586. And in 586 is when Daniel and the the kind of the educated, uh, those that had uh, some pedigree were taken to Babylon because they they could use them in training for, for uh, for their kingdom. And so that's why they took Daniel. You remember that what was recorded for us in Daniel? They taught them the way and the learning. People that had the knowledge, the ability to, to learn. So Daniel was in that first wave in 586. And then there was another wave. And then the thir- third and final wave is when Jerusalem itself was completely plundered. It was completely leveled. They leveled the temple. They leveled everything. And, of course, there was a full 70 years of captivity that was, was laid out for these people during that time. So... Um, one commentator said it this way, uh, I, I'm of the persuasion that, that I, I truly believe that Obadiah, Obadiah wrote this particular, his particular book sometime during the time of Jeremiah and that, that time in which Jerusalem was plundered. Here, here's what one commentator says, quote, the historic enmity between Israel and Edom reached a climax when the Edomites not only refused to help when the Babylonians crushed the city, but actually aided the destruction and, de- and expressed their delight in the defeat uh, of, uh, of their century-old archenemy, end quote. If you would uh, hold your place here and turn to Psalms 137. Psalms 137. And I want you to look at verse number 7. Psalms 137, verse number 7. So, again... This was written when Israel was held in captivity. And notice what is said in verse number 7. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, 
even to the foundation thereof. So the idea of raising it means to level it. So the children of Israel or Edom were saying, just destroy it, completely annihilate it. And they were rejoicing in it. That's the idea. So, so God was, the, the, the psalmist said, hey, Lord, just remember them. And Obadiah is about the remembering. It's about what God is doing in the remembering. So we, we looked at the, the man, we looked at the, the timing. Now let's look at the book itself, letter C. The book of Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, just 21 verses. There are no chapter divisions. It's not chapter 1 and chapter 2, but it's just 21 verses in one little book. Many don't appreciate this book because when they look at this book, they feel like it's just full of fiery indignation and wrath and judgment. Truthfully, it's a book of, of encouragement to the people of God. In other words, when God wrote this, if he wrote it during the time of captivity, it was, a, it was a, an encouragement to Jerusalem and, and, or to, to the to Judeans who were in Babylon in captivity because what Obadiah was saying is God has heard your cry. And these who have rejoiced, this enemy of yours, will be judged. And so, in a sense, it was, it was a, a special blessing. Um, you may remember... That you have to be careful. And, and I, you know, I find today people, you know, they just want to twist everything. Can I tell you that Israel is still Israel? The nation of Israel is still God's chosen people. Many people in this, we're living in a time when many people want to take Israel and transfer to the, to the New Testament saying, now Israel's blessings are the church's blessings. We're blessed. Yes. We are a bride. We're not the bride of, uh, of Jehovah. We're the bride of Christ. Amen. Israel is still God's wife. It's still, he's still, it's still the particular people, peculiar people. And what God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number, um, is it verse, let me see what verse it is, verse number two and three, what he promised there is still true today. And it was certainly true when, when Edom cursed and, re, and rejoiced in Israel's destruction. But here's what God promised Abraham. He said, and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So because, of, because that's true, God was fulfilling his, his promise in bringing judgment against Edom because of their cursing of Israel and their working against them. And I've said this often, and I know some people don't like it, but I, I don't care if people like it or not, it's still the truth. The truth is, is that America, one of the reasons America is still a free nation is because America has always been on the right side of Israel. And we get on the wrong side of Israel, we're in trouble with God. I'm, I'm here to tell you, we're just going to be in trouble with, with, the, with the God of heaven. So you better hope and pray that our, our leaders in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. understand this principle and believe the Bible enough to, to say, okay, we need to be on the right side of Israel in these things. Now, that doesn't mean everything Israel does is right. But you don't want to be on the wrong side of Israel. I'll guarantee you that because God's promises are still true, as we'll see. All right, so we've looked at the man. Let's look at number two. The judgment of Edom is predicted here in verses one through nine. Notice what happens in verse number one. We have a call to battle. Verse number one, it says, And the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. So, God is basically just saying through the prophet, uh, there's, been a, there's been something we've heard. There's a stirring among the, the nations 
that they're getting ready to bring battle against Edom. That's what he's saying. So as we've already pointed out, Edom was an enemy of Israel and Judah, and Israel had not, had not treated Edom as an enemy. So I, I want you to, to, to remember that as, you, as, as we kind of work our way through this. Here's what I mean. So, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have an enemy, you kind of re- return or you respond in kind. Now, I understand that what Jacob did initially was not right. Okay. We all understand that. Nobody here would justify the, the, the treatment that Jacob did there because God would have done it on his own time. He just, Jacob just didn't want to wait. He didn't want to do it on God's time. He took it in his own hands and so did his mother. So as a result of that, this animosity is there. So after that's all over, with the, as far as Israel is concerned or as Jacob is concerned, you're my brother. I want to be a brother to you. I want to be kind to you. So God had explicitly told Israel to treat Edom with respect. Again, I want you to hold your place here. Go to the book of Deuteronomy for just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Now, you may remember that Deuteronomy is a repeating of the law. So in your mind, I want you to think about Israel's now been in the promise or is in, the, is in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go in the promised land. Moses is getting ready to take off the scene. So what he does is he repeats the law in the book of Deuteronomy. And so he's kind of rehearsing their history to the people this younger crowd, because remember, everybody that was 20 years old and, and uh, older would die in the wilderness, so most of that crowd was gone, so he's got to re-educate some of these, these, young, these younger folks. And by the way, younger people always need to be re-educated, right? That's part of what we do as adults. We have to re- re- repeat our history and, and, and teach lessons. Notice what he says in verse number four. And command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir. Remember, they, they inhabited Mount Seir. And they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you their land. No, not so much as a foot breath, because I have given Mount Seir to eat unto Esau for possession. Ye shall buy meat of them for money, that ye may eat, and ye shall also buy water of them for money, that ye may drink. So what God was saying is, okay, you're passing through here. Do not mess with Esau. You leave them alone. Do not treat them with with disregard or disrespect. If you're going to take something theirs, you buy it. You don't take it. You just, even though you perhaps could, I'm not allowing you to do that. I'm saying to you, you leave them alone. Now, notice that Edom didn't repay this kindness as a people. They harbored this resentment and ill will towards Israel. And when Israel was attacked, they rejected and even helped their enemy. So as a result of that, you know, these people that are attacking Israel, they're helping them. And we'll look at that again a little bit more in detail in a a moment. But God will judge them. He will judge them because of their messing with his chosen people. God was stirring up the heathen, according to verse number one, against Edom. And he would use the heathen to judge this nation. You know, it's interesting to me, when the Bible talks about the heathen, it's just basically talking about anybody that wasn't a a Jew. (laughs) And so, uh, throughout the Bible, you'd always see that these, God would judge nations by by using another nation to bring war against them. So Babylon was God's tool against Israel. That was his tool, even though... You know, they, he said, oh, look, I, you, you violated my covenant, so you're going to have to pay. I'm going to use Babylon. Well, after he was done with Babylon, God, God then judged Babylon for their, you know, what they did to Israel. So, so I'm just say, saying that when we look throughout history, you know, 
I don't like what's going on in Ukraine. I don't like what's happening in, you know, in this, this world and nations rising up against nation, but that's just part of what we deal with in this world. Amen. Crazy, crazy people who always want to you know, take something that belongs to someone else. And I don't know how that works. I, I'm, not, I'm not God. I don't know what God is doing through all those things, but certainly in this case, God, God said, okay, I'm going to use the heathen to judge Edom because of what they did to Israel. Would you notice letter B, the pride of Edom? We find that in verses 2 through 4. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. Verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle... And though thou shalt set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. So, again, I mentioned to you when, when Esau separated himself, when, when, in other words, when, when Jacob came back to the land with his people at a point, Esau said, I'm out of here. Where did he go? He went to this place called Mount Seir and dwelled there. Now, Edom as a people were full of pride because of their dwelling in this mountain. So you, when God says you, you're prideful, notice what he says in verse number, uh, verse number three. The pride of thy heart has deceived thee, thou dwellest in the clefts of the rock. So let, let me give you a little background on that so that you understand. Mounts here, of course, a little geography lesson. If you look at the nation of Israel today in the south, going south out of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is south of, in, in the nation of Israel, so you're looking at the bottom portion. But south of that is what we call the Dead Sea. And when you get to the, the Dead Sea, it's not, you're not far from the modern-day Jordan. So Mount Seir today is in modern-day Jordan. So how many folks have ever heard of the, the city called Petra? Okay, Petra, the Red Rock City. It's located in Jordan. You can still go there today, by the way. The, the ruins are still there. And uh, what they basically did, they just went into the rocks and began to carve into the rocks these, this dwelling place. And so this was where, where Esau landed. This, is what, this was his dwelling place among the rocks. So they, my understanding from the study that I've done is that there was only two ways into this place where they dwelled. So there were two kind of ravines that came in. And one was, uh, was the, the main access and the other was kind of the back road. So as you came into where they were dwelling... Uh, it, was, it was, again, in a, in a very difficult-to-get-to place. So in the, the wide, at one of the narrow spots, only two horsemen abreast could pass through the narrow opening to get back into where this basin, where, where the city was located, where they built it. So it became this, kind of this idea that it was a, a place where you know, they dwelled and nobody could drive them out because they had the advantage. They, they were in, in, in a height. Off the ground, you had to pass through to get to them, so they, they had the advantage as people were coming in, they could take them out. Uh, they, from the top, from my understanding, is where even from, if you were looking down, you'd have a hard time seeing them because of the way the rocks were situated. So, so God had, uh, they, they had this, this, what was called kind of an impenetrable fortress that they were living in, and so they were full of pride. Who's going to take us down? Who's going to mess with us? You know? who, who can handle us? And God said, well, I'll bring you down. I'll bring the eagle down. As the eagle li lives among the, the clefts of the rock, builds its, its, its dwelling place there, you know, you kind of think of it as being hard to get to, hard for predators to reach. And that's kind of the way they thought. Well, nobody's going to reach us. And it's quite interesting. They, they say the natural beauty of, uh, in, the, in the defense of Petra were unique among all the cities. And uh, again, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, 
So uh, notice in verse number three, it says that they dwell in the clefts of the rocks, and we men- mentioned that. Not only was it challenging to get to, but the dwellings of these people, again, couldn't be seen from, from above. And so uh, God gives us this, this analogy in verse number four of the eagle being cast down. Notice, if you would, uh, the plundering of, of Edom, verses five through seven. Notice God, uh, through Obadiah, asks some questions in verse number five. Notice he says, if thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how, are they, how, are, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? And if the grape gleaners came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? So uh, these are somewhat natural questions. I, you know, most thieves, when they come in, they just, there's a couple things they're after, right? They come in to get what they want, and away they go. Uh, they don't necessarily clean the whole house out. I mean, take all the furniture and all the f- appliances. It's not what they come to do. They, they come to get the valuables. They come to get the jewels. They come to get whatever money or the guns or whatever's in the house. So that's, that's his question. He said, if, if the robbers came to thee, would they not rob until they had enough and then they'd leave? Uh, then, then he asked this question, would the great gleaners, would, would they completely, you know, leave no, nothing on the vine? That's his, his question. Now, you may remember that when God's instruction to the nation of Israel was that when they were to glean their fields and glean the vineyards, they weren't to take all of the, the fruit. Right. They'll leave some behind for the fatherless and the widow. That was God's way of caring for the poor. And so, so and, and, and I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but, you know, have you ever gone to, you know, kind of reap something or, or clean up something and, and you thought you got it all and you look back and you missed two or three things and it's like, how did I miss that? Well, the idea is that the grape gleaners, they're not going to take it all. But his thought here, as he makes that statement in verse number five, notice what he says, how art thou cut off? In other words, he's saying, okay, uh, the thief wouldn't take everything, but I'm going to take it all. The grape gleaner's not going to take everything, but I'm taking it all. I'm going to completely annihilate you. I'm going to bring you to nothing. That's what God was saying in verse number five. So it's a natural question. Petra was a marketplace for trade. She, she was a people of great wealth. So, again, my understanding is, this, that even though this ravine was somewhat narrow, it was a, kind of a, a roadway that went through there that the, the traders would come through. And so they oftentimes would have uh, great wealth coming through there. And so they would trade and they would, they would gather these things. Notice in verse number six that God states he's going to search, he searched out the things that are hidden from you. Look, looks what he says. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are the hidden things sought up? So the, the idea seems to be that which nobody else could see, God says, I'm seeing. Because I'm God, I search it out. If we go back to Genesis, and I've, I've said this sometimes, you know, if I had to kind of choose between the two guys at the beginning, Esau and Jacob, I'd probably choose Esau. I, honestly, I feel like, in some respects, I feel like the guy got a raw deal. But you know what God reveals to us here? He reveals to us the hidden things of Esau. Things that you and I perhaps wouldn't see on the surface. Oh, yeah, we like him. He's an outdoorsman. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a good old boy, right? He's a hunter. He's a fisher. He, he loves to go live off the land. And, and yet the Bible indicates that Esau had no use for the things of God. He, 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 he so despised his birthright, he would sell it for a bowl of red pottage that his brother had made. So, so as we look at this, this deceit, what God is revealing to us here in the book of Obadiah is there was more hidden animosity and envy and jealousy in his heart than what we could see on the surface. And God is saying, now I'm exposing it. I'm, I'm sharing that with you. 
Can I just tell you that you and I need to understand this, that, hey, there's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. Amen. We may look at each, at each other. We may say, well, man, look at, look at that person. Aren't they, aren't they wonderful? Are they? Does God know something that you don't know? How many times have we been shocked when things have come out about people because of their behavior? How many times has that happened where, you know, it's like, man, I thought that person was halfway decent. I thought they were a good guy. Look what they just did. I thought that was a good woman. Look what she did. You know, God has a way of bringing things to the surface. God has a way of uncovering that which no one else can see. And he's certainly doing that here with this nation of Edom as he deals with them. So again, we understand that he didn't, he didn't value those things that God valued. Verse 7 speaks of the treachery of those who sought out and plotted against uh, Edom to destroy her. Look at what it says in verse number seven. And all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. That, that they that eat thy bread have laid, thy, uh, laid a wound under thee. There is, a, uh, there is none understanding in him. So he's basically saying these people that you, you think are your friends that are in confederacy with you. He said, I'm going to use them. I'm going to stir them up. To bring your destruction. So verses 8 and 9, we have what we call the slaughter of Edom. Notice what he says in verse number 8. Shall, uh, shall I not in the day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And the mighty men, and thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of them, every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So the men of Edom prided themselves on two things. Number one, their wisdom. So, so as these trade routes came through here, they, the people were gaining information. They would, they'd know a lot of things about the different nations. They would know, you know, some of it was just knowledge that they gleaned as these people traveled through. So they prided themselves as being a wise people. But they also, according to verse number eight, thought them of having mighty men, the men, mighty men of Teman. Teman was a general name for the powerful men of the nation as Teman was the grandson of Esau. So, so we look at that, you know, we, we understand that evidently there were some men who thought, you know, we're the warriors, we're the, we're the you know, the, the elite, so to speak. And God said, I'm going to cut them off and to cut off the wisdom and to cut off these mighty men out of your, your presence. Then we, we come in verses 10 through 14, and God now begins to lay out for us his, his indictment, so to speak, of this nation. Why was God so going to do this to Edom? Well, we understand that they were an enemy of Israel, but he kind of lays out some things. The, notice the object of, of Edom's mistreatment is found in verse number 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. You know, again, it's one thing for us to have an enemy. You know, the United States of America, we have some enemies in this world. We're probably an enemy to some nations. I have no doubt about that. But you know, it is a terrible thing when brother rises up against brother. You know, we think about the, the civil war that took place and how that divided families and brothers would stand on one side of the line and brothers on the other side of the line and, and end up, you know, bloodshed shed and violence. And how, how critical and how difficult is that, you know, so to speak? So uh, the prophet Obadiah, God is now sharing the key reason for Edom's judgment. Esau was Jacob's brother. Now, I want you to, again, hold your place. Let's go to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. I want you to see what God says in Numbers, chapter 20, about, uh, about Edom. Look at verse number 14, and we're going to look at a few verses here. 
And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. So we're talking about this nation, Esau's descendants. Thus saith thy brother Esau, thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us. How our fathers went down to Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And we cried out unto the Lord, and he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost part, uh, uttermost of, of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through thy fields, or nor through thy vineyards, neither will we drink of thy water, of thy wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand or to the left until we have passed thy borders. Here's Edom's response. And Edom, Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway. And if, we, if I or my cattle drink of thy water, then I will pay for it. I, I, will, I, I, uh, I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. So again, it's just the idea, can we just pass through? You're not passing through. They're making life difficult for their brother. These were people that had a relationship, and yet this falling out has taken place. So let's go back to Obadiah. Notice in verses 11 through 14, we have a list of things that are mentioned. So God begins to lay out this list for us of the sins of Edom that he searched out. And God has a way of making those things that are hidden, again, to be plain. It's important to note that God knows all things about all, all of us. People may look at us and, again, believe one thing, but God really knows the truth. So notice the sins of evil deeds of Edom, which God will judge them. Verses 11 and 13, she stood and watched as her brother Judah was attacked and taken captive. The indication is that Edom even participated in the pillaging and the plundering of, of Israel when, or Jerusalem when it, was, when, it, when it fell. If you look at what he says in verse 11, in the day that thou stoodest on the other side. In the day when the stranger carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gate and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou was one of them. Verse 13, thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in that day for their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in that day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So God was saying, you, you violated these people. You violated my people, my, my Israel. And so as a result of that, you're going to pay a price for that. Look at verse number 12. He gloated when Israel and Judah was taken away captive. Verse 12. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shalt thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their um, destruction. Neither shouldest thou spoken proudly in the day of distress. So, again, God is saying you, you just have violated things and you're going to pay for it. And then he, look at verse 14. He even blocked the escape of those who fled and turned them over to, to those to whom they fled, according to verse number 14. So, can you imagine? Instead of being a help to them, being an aid to them, okay, you're going to be neutral. You're not going to be, get involved. Well, now they're trying to, these people are trying to escape. These are, these are if you would, uh, refugees. And instead of helping them, you block their path and you take them to the captives. It, and God is saying, I, I'm aggravated with that. So in verses 15 through 16, point number four is the day of Edom's doom. It's defined. It's the day the Lord has referenced, references. He uses the, that phrase, the day of the Lord. You may remember that, again, in the general sense, that talks about the day in which God brings judgment upon all the nations. 
Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 20 really references the day of the Lord, but it also, in a, in a, in a smaller sense, can reference a time when God deals with a, with a nation. And it seems to be that indication here that he's dealing with, with these people. Verse 16 points out, Edom will drink from a cup. And oftentimes a cup is indi- indicative of you know, uh, God's judgment. And so the cup of God's wrath. And so he said he's going he's gonna to drink of it. In the time frame between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, we find that God does deal with Edomites. There are two situations that unfold in that what we call intertestinal period uh, when the, uh, a man by the name of John Hyrcanus, uh he was uh, a Jew who was known as the John, uh, the, uh, part of the Maccabean line. John, uh, and the Maccabees was a title was given to Judas, who was a man who was a hero winning independence for Israel. But this, this John Hyrcanus, you know, drove these or attacked the Edomites and drove them from their place. And the Romans also conquered Edom. So in that intertestament period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, it seems to be God's judgment on these particular people. Then verses 17 through 21, as this book ends, we have what we call the restoration of Israel. So while God's judging Edom, God says, okay, I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to, I'm going to bring restoration, bring them back to a place of prominence and, and greatness. You know, during the millennial reign of Christ, Israel will be the capital of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He will reign here on this earth, and it will be his capital. During the tribulation period, of course, you know, the first part of it, there's going to be a covenant that's entered into by the Antichrist with Israel for somewhat their protection and but during the halfway point, again, that covenant is broken, and it's going to be very, very difficult for the nation of Israel, and persecution is going to fall out. Uh, most people believe Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38 could be happening, or could be the beginning of it right now, with Russia and Iran and China all maybe forming a confederacy, and one of their targets may be Israel. And that could happen even before the, the beginning of the tribulation period. So again, we're just seeing some things kind of play out, but just think about Okay, you have seven years of tribulation, seven years of difficulty, but after that tribulation is over with, Israel is restored to its glory, and the king of glory will reign. Boy, what a moment that's going to be on this earth when God restores them to to that place. Now, let me just wrap this up tonight, and we'll be finished. I don't know about you, but, you know, we're living in a time of turmoil, and one of the things I've noticed as I'm reading through my my Bible, I, I I see this phrase often that God uses, fear not. Fear not. And I want to encourage you tonight to not be fearful. Amen. You know, you say, well, I go to the gas pump and it's fearful. <laughs> Every time I go there, it just makes me shake, you know, because I look at what it's cost to fill up my car. I mean, it's amazing what's happened in the last year or so, uh, the cost of, uh, of everything. But not only is that transferred to gas, I mean, it transfers to everything we buy because that cost of energy is, is kind of filtered over. But here, here's what I want you to know tonight. You don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be afraid. Amen. Let's trust in the one who can help us, okay? We, we, you know, just as, as Israel was trusting in God, God dealt with their enemies. You know, this old world can shake, and they, it, can, it can shake its fist to the face of God, but i got to tell you, they're not going to win. Amen. You and I, who know Christ as our Savior, we're on the winning side. Amen. That's right. And just remind yourself of that when you get up in the morning. I'm on the right team. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not the Cleveland Browns, okay? I'm on the right team. Uh, I, I, we're on a winning team, and, and, and God is going gonna to clean this whole thing up one day. What a, what a moment that's going to be. Just as God dealt with, with Edom, who caused so much trouble for Israel, God will deal with this whole world. So just keep your chin up, keep a smile on your face, walk with God, 
knowing soon your king will come. Amen. And with that in thought, let's, let's end tonight.